back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. A warm welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the latest edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tecompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest this time out is a true legend of basketball in the UK, and that is not an underestimation. He was selected once back in the eighth round of the NBA draft, ended up in this country and what an impact he made. Alan Cunningham, welcome to the MVP cast. I mean, well, there is so much, and where do we start with the incredible career that you had in this country and elsewhere? But talk about when you came over here, because I mean, you came out of college, selected in the, in the draft in 1978, um, by the Philadelphia 76ers. And then, you know, you go to the Harlem Globetrotters before you even get to here. And they're one of the, you know, so you're four, you're with it, two of the biggest organizations in basketball in one summer. What was that summer like to work out for the NBA and then end up in the Globetrotters for a while? Well, it was, um, it was, I have to admit, it was um, one of those up and down summers. Kind of, kind of one of those things with my career. Um, the reason I say that is because um, oh, when, no. I, when, when, when I when what I reason I say that is is that when I um, first went with the Sixers, two weeks before um, I went to camp, I was playing against a young man who used to play in the NBA by the name of named Kermit oh, Kermit Washington. Oh, Kermit Washington used to play for the Los Angeles Lakers. So we were down in San Diego State University just playing some uh, pickup ball. I'm getting ready to go to camp and everything. And and he comes down with it for a rebound. I get my finger caught in his arm. As he, and as I try to yank my finger away at the same time he janks, jerks away his elbow, um, what happens is it breaks. It broke uh, the metacarpal in my hand. And um, so I actually went to camp um, for, for the uh, 76ers. Uh, still, just I just took took the cast off my hand and and just said, "Sorry, I'm going in play," you know. And I had to do what I could do, you know. But you know, uh, yeah, I did well. I was in funny enough. I was in camp. I was in camp with a guy that was my roommate by the name of Maurice Cheeks. I don't know if you ever heard of. He's, Maurice he's done Cheeks. okay for himself over the years, is Mo? Yeah, well, Maurice was their first pick uh, in the for Sixers that year, and I was the third pick for the Sixers. Uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of picks anyway, but, um, and we were in camp, but we already knew each other already. We were good friends already. We, we, um, played against each other while in university. While I was at Colorado state every year, they would come and um, would come to Colorado state and, and, uh, play and vice versa. We go to West Texas state where he came out of and we'd play. But, uh, my first year I wasn't, I was in a red shirt year there and I was, um, I got really good friends with him, and yeah, so we just became good Mason. Or oh, then later on, we were played in the senior tournaments together at the end of our senior year and everything. And lo and behold, 
We le- we end up in camp together, and we're roommates in camp. I said to him. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you use the mates there. You can tell you've settled in all here over the years. Um, I mean, going going into the globe charts. I mean, you know, people have this sort of image of the globe charts. You know, from from I remember growing up seeing the cartoons of them in television. That was what was my experience of them until I saw them saw them live. Tell us, how did you get recruited by by them? when the, well, the NBA was sort of a second option to the NBA? Well, actually, just like the NBA has scouts out, so do they. In fact, when I was first uh, spoken, when uh, teams were recruiting me, talking about, um, uh, I mean, uh, at the time, that wasn't just the 76ers. I was talking to um, Golden State and a couple of other ones, you know, where I thought I might end up. The honestly truthful, I thought I was going to get drafted, hopefully, by Denver. Because, you know, I remember I played in Fort Collins, which is in Colorado. And at the time, I had to be, well, I, you know, I had to be, like, the hottest prospect out of Colorado at that time coming out. But, as they say, in life, a lot of things always are up and always down. And nothing ever is black and white. And what that means is my coach, who at the time was one of the top NCAA people uh, in in university ball um he had he had a chance to make a decision uh about the three-point line and the 30-second clock because you get back then there was no 30-second mm. clock in basketball and there definitely was no three-point line <laughs> so so um they came to him and said right well we'd like to put a three-point line in for uh for all of the universities for uh, ncaa division one you know universities you know, make that. And he said, I will say yes. He had the deciding vote. He said, I will say yes if if you get a 30-second clock in. But they said no. So he so he said no. So that year he vetoed the 30-second clock. Uh, and he, well, he actually vetoed the three-point the three line, you know. But um, so we're talking in 90, that was probably 90, summer of 96. Mm. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in 96 it was. That'd be about right, 96, 97. And um, um, so, you know, we didn't have a three-point line and stuff and everything. But, you know, carrying that story over, the reason I'm bringing that in is because he started started to get a lot of hate, you know, (laughs) you know, but just trying to do the right thing because something truthful. He came to us and he told us after after the He he told us to start that season. He told the whole team about what happened and everything. And, you know, I, I couldn't hate him for that because he was trying to put a good thing. And eventually they put a 30-second clock in anyway, you know, because otherwise you used to get universities who would just run the ball, turn it over and over and over again, you know, before they take a shot, you know. So, yeah, 77, yep. And it would just turn it over and over before they take a shot. And so he was trying to get that in there. So I, I understood that. What I didn't understand was him having a fight with Larry Brown. Um, Eddie Brown, <laughs> Eddie Brown was the head coach of the Denver Nuggets. You understand? And Denver Nuggets always trained at our at our university, Colorado State University. You understand? So while they would be training there in the summer, we would like go along, get a chance to maybe play. You know, if he, uh, after in the training session, they let us come out and play and train with them and all this. But uh, what happened was, uh, I guess uh, he wasn't too happy with their sessions and all this, and he we didn't get a chance to play and. And Coach Williams really, you know, uh, got upset about it. So he told him, you know, we said, well, this is my gym. You know, get the hell out. Because, you know, our, 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 our gym seated 20-some thousand people, you know. 
It was a big, we call it, it was called Moby, like Moby Dick, because you look out the front of it, it looked like a whale's head, you know, just like, <laughs> it really is. It's the most beautiful thing I'd ever come across in my time, you know, because people don't realize that before I joined Colorado State, I'd, um, I had gone to a, a small college called United States International University, USIU. And they had a they had a campus in here in England. They had one in Mexico, one in they had one in Hawaii, and they had two in San Diego. One down by Point Loma, and one at the top part, which is on the coast, right on the right on the water, uh, San Diego, and one at the top part of San Diego, which was right next to what we call Fighter Town. If you want, you're gonna ask me what is Fighter Town, I'm gonna tell you. It actually wasn't called Fighter Town. When you see the movie. It's called Top Gun. I was about to say, yes, yeah. I've and, seen that. And the and the they, they call it Fighter Town USA. But really that's Miramar. And I live and my university was just right not right across my I just sit out every day and watch them jets touch down, take off, touch down, you know. And then all of a sudden sometimes you hear whoosh, just take off, you know, and what that was was they was headed out to a ship or somewhere, you know. And I'm really up on all of that because my father was thirty some was thirty over thirty years in the Navy. Uh, so I'm a military brat anyway, and and that was my goal all my life was to be a pilot. So I'm really up on every kind of fighter craft there is as well. But uh, when you come out of high school and you find out you make a and you grow like seven inches in one year, you can't be a fighter pilot. You know, it's fine. It's fine when you're five ten, five eleven, even six foot. But when you all of a sudden go up, and they, next time you talk to these people and you're like uh, six seven. They're asking, like, what happened, and they want to, you know, they're saying, well, yeah, you can fly a transport plane or maybe a helicopter. I was like, no, I've, I've been a fighter jet man all my life. I've been in every kind of aircraft there is, uh, mainly because my father been on the aircraft carrier and all kinds of other, been in the military that long. He would always say, my, my son wants to sit in that plane. Is that all right? And they go, yeah. My son wants to, you know, I, um, I remember the, la- the last thing I had a chance to sit in would have been, like, uh, probably the South African... I said in two, I said in the South African helicopter with all the big bombs on the side, you know, and that Russian Soviet one. I, I said it all of them, you know, one point in time, you know. But um, but the thing was, was I was always interested in that. So I went to USIU um, up there hanging around. We didn't, But the, the thing behind that is we didn't have a gym. Point Loma College had part of that campus, had a gym. Beautiful campus, most beautiful campus you are. In fact, if you go there now, it's called Point Loma College now. And it still is as beautiful as can be. You know, where USIU, we had a little soccer field. We had a canteen, or as you call it, refectory for the food and stuff and everything, classrooms and dorms. That was all we had. So people say, well, where'd you train us? I trained in high school gyms. I trained in you know, other university gyms, like University of San Diego or University of California, San Diego, UCSD, USD. These were the gym places we played at. So I never had... The last time I had had a really home court advantage would have been when I was in high school. So I found it easy to play no matter where I went because as far as I'm concerned, everything was a away game. So, you know, so I had no problem playing away. Does that suggest, I mean, the the fact that you started off collegiate life there, did that suggest that coming out of high school that you weren't necessarily thinking you were going to be a pro basketballer? No question. <laughs> Are you kidding? Hey, hey you know. Or the, or the other people thought you were going to be a pro basketball. Nobody thought I was going to be a pro basketball player. 
The only ones that probably thought I could probably make that and be that would be my family because I had that kind of family. You know, the support. We're all sports minded. We're all we're all sports people. You know, from my oldest brother to my youngest. You know, I mean, there's seven of us, and you know, so. But I was, but I was a nerd. I'm not gonna lie, or a geek, uh, all those things you want to call. I was a bookworm, whatever you want to call those people who weren't Af- who weren't you know sports really orientated. That was me. I played. I played. I used to play instrument. I used to play. Uh, I played in the marching band. I played in the pep band. I played uh, saxophone. I uh, was in. All, I was in the debating club and all the book clubs and you know all that kind of stuff. I just happened to be a geek that just also did sport. You know, like what you know. Um, you know, uh, the, but the problem about that was to show you how geeky I was. I was probably all of like five foot eight, five foot nine. I weighed about a hundred pounds, soaking wet. I was this little, <laughs> I had all the names from men called skinny beanpole, skeleton, clothes hanger, every kind of name you can call me and make me feel bad about and bully me, bully me with, I had. But unfortunately, or should I say fortunately, I also possessed uh, three real big, big uh, nuclear type factors that went with me that people had to watch out for. It was called a Cliff, called a Cliff, a Cheryl, and an Adriel. That's called my oldest brother, my oldest sister, and my other oldest brother. <laughs> they would kick your ass behind their baby brother because uh, mom and dad, that's how dad played. That's how we rode, you know, especially back then. You got to understand, I lived in a world where ah, where racism was so bad where, you know, I mean, I go into the, I remember doing things like going to the restaurant. I'm sorry, we don't serve colored people here. Well, that's good. My father said, we don't eat them. That's good. So come on, kids, come out of here. You understand? So I grew up in that kind of time, you know. I never thought there would ever be a black president in my time. I'm not going to lie, you know, from going through what I've gone through. And racism has been, and you know, and it is true what they do say. I'm going to say this right now while this is out here. Because we are at a time where they just put their, neck, their, their knee on George Floyd and all this and all this going around. We don't ever seem to get it done. And the reason I say that is because... Racism was just uh, was so high back then, and and racism is still racism is still racism is radio still radio, racism is still on as big as it was. You understand? Does that and, surprise uh, you? I mean, that now here we are, fifty years onwards from you know that was the kind of post civil rights era where you know, if, if I guess if you tried to project things, you would have thought by now. It would be okay, or it would be pretty pretty okay. Does it surprise you that growing up in in the states in the you know sixties and seventies, that now we are in twenty twenty, and this theme is still going on, and it's the same sort of musical playing in the background. As long as it, as long as it's always institutionalized, it will always be there. You know, let's get it straight. And don't be wrong. What's so good about now, as something I ain't seen is. The people leading the march this time are white people, okay? And that's a great thing because that means that in society as a whole, people realize people are people. Humans are human. You know, we all got the same feelings. We all bleed the same. We'll all die the same. We'll all catch the same bug. Don't get me wrong. I might be more susceptible to bugs than you, you know, like sickle cell, uh, COVID-19. You know, let's get it straight. Uh, that, that 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 always seemed to be out there. I always seem to be, and I hate to say this, but blacks have always seemed to be on the scourge part of the earth. But in other words, 
if, if somebody was putting me down as as one race, well, I, I would put my I to build myself up. I would put the blacks, put myself over the blacks, put them down, and that's how I rode. Uh, you know, I don't care. I've been in other minorities, and I, I, you know, when I was first kid, young kid, one of my first girlfriend was Chinese, and and believe me, their parents couldn't stand me. You know, they, you know, and they couldn't stand me because I was black. You know, and I knew it. You know, and their daughter knew it, and the other daughter who was with the white guy, she knew it too. But uh, she said, I'd go in the house, and there'd be uh, his photo. Up on the, this photo be up on the uh, mantelpiece. There wasn't no photos around this black guy up there, any mantelpieces or anything. That wasn't gonna happen. Mm. But but you know, but see, but let me show you how the world changes, and that's what I loved about over here. Because you must understand, see, my missus, she's she's mixed race. My missus is mom and family are, are white, they're English, you know, and her dad her dad was Jamaican, you know, and um. I met them over in America over there, and when I first met her, I just thought she was just a, I just thought she was a black uh, person that was, um, you know, that was light-skinned. I didn't realize she, her, her parents was white. To show you how, how kind of, you know, you, you can call it what you want to call it, racist or you want to, the way I was, because I'm, I, you know, racism goes all across the board. Don't get me wrong. You know, blacks are racist just like to, you know, I'm, I'd be, wrong to say that we weren't because we are yeah you know in fact i don't know of anybody people i'm not racist i go well that's a hard thing to say because everybody has a says does says or does something that's racist at some time in their life you know uh did you stop the guy from telling the packy joke probably at some point everyone yeah, yeah we've all we've all yeah. sat in that weird yeah. unpleasant company of well, that's right that's right that's what i'm trying to tell you so we're all are i mean i'm not trying and I'm not jumping on, I'm not jumping on people who say, you know, who have a joke and stuff because some of the silliest, stupidest stuff I've ever heard about in my life was when white people started saying you couldn't say blah blah black sheep and you couldn't say a blackboard and guess what? I'm a teacher. I work in the schools, and I'm sorry if it's a blackboard, it's a blackboard. But <laughs> but and, and let's get it straight. What's racist? Well. If it's racist to call it a blackboard, it must be racist to call it a whiteboard. Because it's okay to call the whiteboard a whiteboard, but you can't call the chalkboard a blackboard. I go, well, I said, well, sometimes it's green, but most of the time, all the blackboards I knew were black anyway. So it's a blackboard. It's not racist. It's just a damn board you put chalk on, okay? It's not racist for it to say, blah, blah, black sheep in a, in a poem, because let's get it straight. If you go out there, I work where I work at right now, we have we have all kinds of sheep and pigs and other kinds of animals at my school and um and I see black sheep and <laughs> blah, blah, black lambs and everything. So that's just see what I was trying to say is a lot of idiosyncrasies got involved in the world. You know, everybody say they want they always want to do something stupid. So which is why I mean the cause will get lost along the way. And that's what I mean. So so a guy gets killed in his neck and guess what? The next thing we're screaming about black sheep or blackboards or or more importantly other issues and i'm not saying other issues aren't important like this uh transgender issues going on and all the very very important don't be wrong i got an a hey and i don't want to sound cliche it's like oh my my best friend is black or my best friend's a trans transgender or that kind of stuff you no know, i'm a, my parents have taught me live and let live and 
I believe that if you're gay, cool. You know, I'd be lying to say that I don't know nobody was gay. Cause let's get it straight. I had a baby brother that was gay, so I, you know, I, I don't. I got no problem with that. You know. How I did you help. find that, Luke? If you when you go to the globe charts, though, because it, you, they were such a sort of cultural totem in America, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, and there were some people that sort of saw them a little bit as. I guess back in them, the sort of the equivalent of you know the minstrels that you know the white folks would come out and watch them and applaud them and laugh at them, but then yeah. go back to the suburbs and you know not recognize them as role models, etc. And there was other people that saw them as a great beacon of reaching out to different people. You know, what was your experience in terms of being being part of that of that era? Well, well, first off, you got to look at it like this: basketball didn't exist. Basketball wouldn't exist without the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm. They introduced the game to the world. All right. They played in front of queens and kings and czars and every kind of people. There was presidents and everything across the board. They played in front of. All right. The reason but the reason they had to do what they did back then, you say, oh, well, it's like a circus came in, you know, all this. It was called barnstorming. What barnstorming is, is whether I was a on the black baseball team or whether I was on the basketball team, whatever. Uh, you would march into the city the day before, like the Ringling Brothers Circus. Do, 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 you understand? And then, uh, and everybody said, Oh, look at the elephants. Oh, look at the clowns. Oh, look at all the magic and stuff. Yes, we're coming tomorrow to that game, to that tent. So they were in the same thing, you know. Uh, you know, they were going to little, you know, find little, little towns and everything that were, well, y'all in my, uh, them, uh, uh, there were that niggers over there with them uh, coming into our town. I don't, you know, get the rope. They got a rope. We got a tree. All we need is a nigger to hang. Okay, and that's how it was back in those days. All right. Well, I mean, the NBA teams did that in the fifties and sixties as well. It was a very similar setup. You know, we think about them just playing this NBA schedule, but they would go on barnstorming trips into that's other you know, small towns on, on the way. That's right. Because again, remember, all teams are just like over here. Did you, teams didn't start off being teams. What they start off being? Workplaces. Mm. They started off being, oh, I worked at the steel mill. Why do you think uh, in, in American football they're called the Pittsburgh Steelers? Because in Pittsburgh, that's where all the steel mining and everything, uh, mills are and everything. And, and the first team was from the steel, was from the work team. That's what they were. They were work teams that built up. Um, and as I said, the Globetrotters were the biggest thing going. So the NBA, of course they had to do it. NBA, Globetrotters were way bigger than NBA. The NBA came to um, Abe Saberstein. He owned the, he owned the Harlem Globetrotters. London-born. Right? Hmm? London-born Abe Saberstein. Yeah, yeah. He, and he owned them. So what he, what he decided was they would play they would play the NBA, champions of the NBA every year on the best of seven at the end of the year. And they would kick their asses every year. A fact. All right. And uh but the problem was Abe said they went to Abe said, Abe, if you help us get the league going, we will give you a team. You see, Glowtars are way bigger than that. They were the you know when you go see the show, if you went to see uh who's your favorite singer? Beyonce. Beyonce. Okay, so I right, I right, well, we'll go right, I'll let you have that. <laughs> <laughs> She's not my favorite singer, but there you go. I like, you know, but Beyonce's cool. I, I got a problem Beyonce. I like Beyonce. You know, she uh, she's a great entertainer. You know, right? So before Beyonce, there'd be a a a, a warm up act, always correct. Mm-hmm. So at, so same thing with Globetrotters. 
So the NBA was the warm-up act for the Harlem Globetrotters. Fact. They asked them to come and be the man. If they could uh, appear on our tickets, on the Globetrotters tickets, and they promised Saberstein, if he helped them out, they would give him a team, you know. So a couple of years went by as they got into the second year and saved like where's my team and stuff. And they decided they wasn't going to give him a team. They, 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 you know, basically snowballed him, you know, where I got him to help them and then didn't give him a team. So he, you know, he went back out on, the, he still kept his team anyway, two in a round. And they still played the NBA, you know, whoop them in the championship stuff and everything. But by the time Abe, when they finally didn't give him a team, Abe said, right, I'm pulling a show. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to front you no more and all this. We're not, you know, we're not going to be the star and let you guys. But by that time, the NBA had got going. You understand? They had got going well enough to support themselves, you know. So, um, you know, so, so the Globe Charters is, well, the rest is history. You know, the Globe Charters went on, just carry on taking names. And they had a guy, they really started off with a guy by the name of Goose, Goose Tatum. Goose was the first original showman. And uh, people would say, well, what happened to him? I say, well, you know, they went, they went to, to do a show one day. He did the show, and he was supposed to be in the next city. He never showed up. Never came back. Goose said, I had enough of this crap. I'm done, you know, <laughs> you know. So, and we all know the most famous one after that, which would be Mellow Locked Lemon. So you would have, I guess, played with him that time. You know what? I've never, I never got a chance to play with Mellow Locked. I got a chance to train with him and everything, but I never got that year that I joined the Globe Charters, the Globe Charter organization actually locked him out, you know, and so he went and started his own team. I think he started a team called the Clowns or something, no, Magicians. He started the Magicians, that's right, Harlem Magicians, because you had the Harlem Wizards and the Harlem Magicians, you know, but he went and started his own team and everything. But, you know, I mean, but by that time, uh, that year I took over, I, I came in, there was a guy by the name of Geese Osby, so Curly, Curly Neal, Geese Osby, Mel, um, Nate Branch, uh, Dallas Thornton, Babyface Page, you know, Babyface, the big seven foot one. These were all the guys that were there the year I, I took over. Don't be wrong. On the other team, you had Lou Dunbar, Twiggy Saunders, all the, you know, other, other famous ones that you see on the cartoons and stuff too, you know, and, but they had, they had two teams, you know, I think at one time or another, uh, when Globe Charles first started, they had up to four teams going. Uh, touring. Abe was a good businessman. He wasn't stupid. <laughs> okay. do, you, do you find it kind of extraordinary in this country? I mean, here we are, like over forty years later. Um, every time you, you know, you you've been still going out and you still visit schools and still go out, but you're always still in the publicity material, despite all this fantastic success you had in this country. You're still often referred to still as former Harlem Globetrotter star. Is is there is a certain pride? Even in what you've achieved, that you were part of for a very short period of time, but part of this massive institution of basketball. Yes, I. I that's 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 a respect uh, statement. That's not a put me down statement. You you know you know everybody around the world knew the Globetrotters. Everybody, you know, and that's like they used to come out and they go, "Where's Curly? Where's Curly? Where's Curly?" And then Curly take the wig off his head and they go, there's Curly. I mean, there isn't a place I can go in the world whether I was in Russia, whether I was in Norway, or whether I was in Denmark, or whether I was down another part of the world, Mexico, it doesn't matter. Canada, everybody around the world, you know, knew Curly. And everybody knew the Globetrotters. So I find that a, a, a respectful statement when they say, oh, you're a former Harlem Globetrotter. They go, how come you never did more with it? Why don't you go back and still, you know, 
do more stuff with it. And I go, well, you know, I said, um, the truth of all is like everybody, you know, we do a job and then we, we move on and we start doing other things. And sometimes we get so involved in all the other things we're doing that we forget that we actually had that at our at access to us to, to maybe, to maybe build on that anyway. But, but I've met some really, really good people all through the years. You know, I was on, um, I remember when I became the player coach at, um, at Worthing, the Worthing Bears, and I went down and became the coach, manager, whatever you guys, you guys call them managers, we call them coach. Uh, um, I, that year we won the league, my first year coaching, and we won the Wembley Championship Playoffs. And that same year, after I won the league, I went to, um, I went to, um, I call, oh, I just called up the TV station and uh, asked could I speak to uh, Bruce Forsythe. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, that's really good, sir. And, uh, you know, we really, that's really good, but you're not going to you know, talk to Bruce Forsythe. And I said, well, I just explained to him who I was. I'm Alan Cunningham, I'm from Hong Kong. I'm with the Worthing Bears, and right now we are the champions of uh, England, and uh, and uh, we're going to be the champions of Wembley. We hadn't played Wembley yet at that time, but I'm sure I'm sure we're going to win it because, you know, no brag, just fact. Uh, every year, Wembley was won by one player for sure. Uh, that that there be me. <laughs> <laughs> Modest to your fault. <laughs> Hey, now I, I always have a laugh with the guys because I had a I had a good mate of mine uh, named Kevin Cato. Kevin used to play. Kevin was the guy on Sky Sports for 17 years, the presenter. But Kevin was also the most successful coach in this country. And Kev Kev started up in Scotland. He started in Scotland before he moved down uh, before he moved down to England, where he went to Manchester and then so on. But anyway, through the years, we we'd always gone up against each other, and then we uh, we finally hooked up uh, together and. Uh, uh, when, when we went to Glasgow Rangers, that was the first time I'd been with him. But the thing, the, re the reason I, I say this is because kid would always say stuff to me. Yeah, man. You know, uh, I, you know, like we won that first year we won the cup, you know, and he says, yeah, what does it feel like to finally be able to win on TV? That's what he said to me. I said, brother, I always know how to win on TV. I just hadn't, I said, I played on TV many times and always won. I said, uh, I just hadn't won, at, you know, on any championship game like Wembley on TV or the Cup on TV or that type of stuff, right? And uh, so we won the Cup that year. But I said to him, I said, but the only reason you got me in, Kev, was this. Uh, I said, because as successful as you are as a coach, you must realize you have one problem. He said, what's that? There's only one person ever going to win the league, and that's the team I'm on, okay? <laughs> so, so guess what? It's your lucky day. You finally get to get your first league win this year, you know? And sure enough, Kevin Cato never won the league until until 1988-89 when he was at Glasgow Rangers. Uh, but by that time, that was my third year in a row winning the league. I won the, I, I started winning the league. I joined Portsmouth in 85-86. Before that, I had been at Brighton Worthing Bears uh, before that. And before uh, when I first came to this country, I played at Doncaster Panthers and everything. Because let's, yeah. let's, let's roll back to that one. Because obviously, you, you those first three years at overseas, you were in Belgium. And people kind of forget that you arrived here at the age of 27. So you were peak career. How did the Doncaster Panthers arrival come about? How do you know I was that old? I, I knew how old I was today. Stats, I, don't even stats. I, I don't even remember how old I was. All I know is that everybody wanted to know how old I was. And I never let nobody see my passport. Okay, so 
Cause, because when I came to England, you know, one of the first things my wife said to me, she said, have you ever noticed? My wife, and my wife is a sports person. Let's get it straight. My wife is one of these people she could have, she could have did anything in life. She ran, she ran the uh, 100, 2, and 4. You know, she was, she was a uh, sprinter herself and everything. Ran for county and Middlesex and everything. And, um, but she was also really good in netball. You know, she was a, a center in netball and stuff and all of this. And, but she knows sports. She knows all sports. She's just into sports. She knows sports. She's a one of these Liverpool supporters, by the way. I'll let you know. Uh, uh, oh, everyone's underground suddenly a Liverpool supporter. No, 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 no. <laughs> when I first met when I first met my wife, I met my wife back in seventy four. Yeah, seventy just before. Yeah, no, seventy seventy three, seventy four. My first uh, must be my first year in you. Yeah, I met my wife, and she was um, she was a Liverpool supporter then. And let's get it straight. My wife is a Londoner. She's from London. My wife is her family is a Cockney, so they're only going to support two, one or two teams. Well, I said, yeah, one or two. I'll give them one or three, but really one or two, and that will be Arsenal or Tottenham. And I'm an Arsenal supporter. Let's get it straight. I always have been. My 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 whole, wife's whole family are. As am I. So you're a man of exquisite taste. But but my whole family are all. My kid, I have three kids. Uh, my wife and my grandkids, and they're all Liverpool supporters. <laughs> <laughs> so Liverpool is my second team. Arsenal's my first team. Arsenal's their second team, and Liverpool's our first team. So we never say bad things about Liverpool. So if you say anything bad about Liverpool, uh, I'm gonna have to jump down, jump down this phone and come, you know, come get you, right? <laughs> because 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 right behind me is my wife with. You know, standing here with a big stick, top and she's quick. My ass. Oh yeah! So, so I'm letting you know. Don't don't let anything bad about Liverpool come out your mouth now. Right? <laughs> so, John, so, so Doncaster, tell us how that. How did that come about? Did they did they find you? Did you find them? I found them. I found them. I uh, you got to remember, I played over in, in Anderlecht in Belgium and stuff. You know, I been over there, and I I went back home. Um, I did a year at, back home because two things. I hadn't. I had to finish up my degree. I, I had one. <laughs> I know it sounds stupid, but I had one course to finish to finish up my degree. But at the time, I left because uh, I didn't finish that course because I was again involved with the trying to make the pros and stuff, you know. So I. But I had always promised myself I'd go back and finish up my degree. So I, I went back and finished it up and took a job for a hot minute over there. By that time, I had my second child, and I said, you know, honey, uh, I think I'm gonna take off here and uh, uh, shoot over here, shoot over here, uh, shoot over New York. But that's how I, that's how I ended up in Belgium, you know? And then I came here, I had just flown over. I, I actually was touring out with a team called the Harlem Wizards, a guy, a guy by the name of Marcus Haynes. Now Marcus Haynes was the most famous dribbler ever to play in the game of, uh, of the Harlem Globetrotters. Marcus, when he was in university, they played the Globetrotters. And they lost to them. The Globetrotters lost to them by one point. And what's so miraculous about this, because as soon as they lost, right after they signed Marcus up, uh, <laughs> because they got up by one point at halftime, and Marcus dribbled out the whole second half. <laughs> Fact. He dribbled out the second half, man. Come on, man. They, 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 kept, the, they kept the ball away from the Globetrotters. By this man just dribbling, and he could yeah. dribble. He could dribble the ball like a centimeter off the court for ages. 
hey, hey, I'd be like a half a centimeter. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, let's give the man his real due. That, and that's where Curly, Curly came in later on in, in the Globetrotters, becoming the dribbler. But Marcus, was, Marcus Haynes was the first dribbler and taught, taught him all that, you see. And, uh, but yeah, most amazing guy. In fact, I think we just lost him because they were, they were just inducted into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Marcus was, uh, I think Geese has been, Curly has. But I know for a fact we just lost Marcus. And I think we just lost Curly, too. I think he just passed away. I'm not sure. I need to double check, but I'm, I'm pretty much sure they, they passed away now. Yeah, a few years but, ago. Yeah, yeah. But imagine, but imagine these guys. That's how amazing they were and stuff, you know. But anyway, so, so what happened was I, I flew in. I flew over here. I just left Winston's with Marcus. Marcus said, look, Alan, we're going into a European tour trip. Unfortunately... You know, I was last in. It's always last in, first out. You know that. Uh, and he was, and the American government and everything were plan- paying for all the trip and all the plan over here. So Marcus decided he was going to take his brother-in-law with him, which is cool by me, you know. And uh, so he, he took his brother-in-law. So Alan said, well, you're going to be gone. I said, that's fine. I said, that's good because I'm headed that way anyway. And I was in New York at the time. I jumped on the plane and flew straight in. And that would have been... So my first game for Doncaster would have been uh, about November or around that time, you know, because I came in. The season had been going on its way by that time, and they were in pretty bad shape. They were getting their ass kicked by everybody. So they had, and that was back at a time when you could like have three Americans out there playing. I mean, you could have three Americans, but only two could play. But there was no law. There was no rule stopping you changing it. You know, one or two back and forth. Eventually, all of you went to this rule where you you could play two foreign players and two foreign players being you two americans whatever uh you could play two foreign players but if i set one down like say i got hurt well then the other one could then register and become but before me to be able to play again uh i would have to deregister one of the other players and for me to come back in and then after that happened you couldn't switch again you see but back back at that time you could switch back and forth so there was three it was two other americans on the team when i joined doncaster and they were fighting for who was going to play, be the other guy playing with me and the other team, you know. And what, I was mean, the, uh, what was your initial impressions of this strange league? Because it was pre the, the BBL formation, so but it was at that era where it was, it was sort of growing and coming, you know, coming to a degree of prominence in this country. But coming in from having been in Belgium, coming from the states, what what did you think of this strange new adventure? I found. Um, well, actually, I found it not a problem because you must understand what was happening here in England was the same thing happening in Europe. As big as basketball was in Europe, man, I played and I played on teams where they had a bubble. Uh, you know, you know them bubbles you like blow up over it and put up over a, a field mm-hmm. or over. Yeah, so I played in a lot of places that had bubbles, and their and their court consisted of what you guys call pavement. We call that the street. <laughs> in, in America, you have a sidewalk and you have a street. Well, you know, so you guys call it pavement. I, but that's what the street, that's what the courts were made of, a lot of them. So, I mean, and a lot of the courts were hard. Don't be wrong. The majority of the courts in Europe were wood, but they still had a lot of street pavement too. So to come to England, and and you, and the first thing I did was look down what I was what I was running on was like. Oh my God! <laughs> you know <laughs> what the what the dickens is this? You know, because the, what you had was Grandwood, and for those who don't know what Grandwood is, all it is is wood shavings that have been cemented together into a block, and then they put it down on the floor. 
Now, it's bad enough that you got, because it's hard wearing. But it's bad enough that you got this hard wearing floor. But back in those times, the one thing that they didn't do that they needed to do to these floors was spring it. So what they do is they put lats and stuff, different type lats underneath the floor, and that makes the floor sprung. You know, so it goes, when you jump up and down, it actually gives. Now, don't be wrong. You still have these courts in your, all your leisure centers. You still have these, have these uh, granite floors. A lot of places have gone to real wood, to pine wood, which is what basketball is meant to play on. But, you know, but the majority of them all had these hard floors, and which is why you'll find most of the players nowadays that are still existing, they, they have trouble walking, either their knees, their ankles, or their backs are just totally, totally annihilated because of playing all these years on these hard floors. It's fact, you know. And um, that was one of the reasons why I chose Worthing when I did. Um, but back to Doncaster anyway. So, so anyway, I came in. I rang up. Uh, I rang them up. I rang up. Actually, I rang up a team called Kingston. Kingston Kings. They were on. They were at that time being run by a guy by the name of Malcolm Chamberlain, and they were still right there out of Kingston, out of London. There, you know, everybody knows of Kingston, one of the most famous team. Team I ended up going back to after I left Glasgow Rangers, which was the Kingston team that got sold to the Glasgow Rangers. You understand? But um, so anyway, so so I went to Doncaster up there, and um, and as I'm saying, it was still pretty big then because you had the WICB going on then. And that was always a very, very big tournament. And all the top teams across Europe came over. But what was so great about the WICB back then was, that's because if I had 30, if I had 32, 36 uh, men teams there, I still had 32 women teams there as well. You know? And I had these juniors playing. So, you know, back then you had all this basketball going on. Somebody going to going up to Crystal Palace to see, a, to see WICB, and it was, oh, man, they was in basketball heaven. Because you could go there and watch basketball all day. You understand? And that was so brilliant about it. So, like I can say, it was growing. It, yeah, it never was football. But it was, it was, that was initial growing stages. All the, I think a lot of people have been around, like, you know, the people of the Solon Stars back in those days, uh, the Jim Rumseys and all of them. All of them were players themselves at one point in time. But they were building the league, doing a good job. Up in Doncaster, you had a guy by the name of Morris Wordsworth. Morris owned the Doncaster team. And Morris at the time, um, when I, the year before he had been the coach, but he had had a heart attack that, that year, year I came. And so they had, uh, gave the coaching job to Dave Ransom. And, you know, I found, that was the one thing I found really bad about the league when I got here. And that was the coaching. You know, I mean, I'm just going to tell you like it is. Uh, most of the coaches who were here, you know, you have some really good coaches that came over from America and some coaches that, you know, all gone to Europe, and they were trying to build it, you know. But at the time, you still had a lot of English coaches that just didn't know what they were doing. And I'm, I'm saying that. I'm, I'll say British coaches. And the reason I'm saying is because if I played in junior high school, not high school, junior high school, and the coaches would come out there, hey, yeah, guess what, dude, we're going to run. Look, the, the best way to get fit is for you to run this 10 miles. <laughs> So you go out there and run 10 miles because that's the guy said that's what we do. But the truth was, he didn't know the damn thing he was talking about. And that was the worst thing could have been going on. I can remember playing American football and the coach giving us salt tablets back. And, and I lived in California where the summertime heat was like 90 degrees. And we're pad, padded up with a big helmet on and pads and every kind of thing else. And our coach is not letting us have water. 
and he's giving the salt tablets. And then you wonder why a few will start to drop dead by heart attacks uh, 10 years later, okay? So that kind of thing. But so that's how it was when I got here. Um, the, the coaches really weren't that good at coaching. You know, the coaches that were, the foreign co coaches that were here, were down, they had the advantage. You know, the, the British coaches were in the infantile stages. They were just learning, you know. When you, uh, you arrived at that point, I mean, and you went on, you know, there were 7,000 points in the league, which is still amongst the all-time leaders. And you played for, like, almost 20 years more. Could you have imagined at that point that you would have gone on that long, given, you know, that obviously the infrastructure that was here, or the money as it was at that point in time? I and mean, was it ever in your mind that this was going to be the long-term play or did this at the time, was it one of those, like a lot of players you think I'll play for a few years and then I'll go and do something else with my life? Um, no, I always knew I was going to play. I, I always figured I'd play to 50. You know <laughs> oh no. And you, came, and you pretty much managed it. Uh, yeah. Well, I could have played. I just got out because enough in the end, I just, I just had enough of the, unfortunately the thing is the thing about the British game basketball was what I never understood was is a lot of jealousy a lot of uh, hatred uh, a lot of yeah a lot of hatred a lot of bad things saying this is why I'm trying now in this interview I want to make sure that I try not to say anything bad about people because people have kids people have grandkids people have wives they have you know some friends you know so true fall when you go on any kind of network whether I'm on TV radio or anything I should, yes, speak out, speak your mind, but try and be respectful too, you know, because let's get it straight. Them same people were trying to do their best. They were trying to have a career, you know, and what people didn't understand was when I came to Europe, I couldn't understand Europeans. And I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking about the way they talk. Of course, I couldn't understand the speech. I spoke American and, and they spoke Flemish and French and, you know, I had, I had, I had German background, so I couldn't understand some German, but uh, but as far as French and Flemish went, I didn't have a clue, uh, you know. And then I came to England, and I really didn't have a clue. I don't know what the hell y'all was talking. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Doncaster. <laughs> hey, 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 you're right. Guess what? It took me about three months to get a cup of tea when I was in Doncaster. <laughs> you think I'm joking. All right. I'm going to tell you this quick story right quick. Um, so there I was in Doncaster and stuff, and I had a friend of mine, his name was Dave. Dave, he's like my baby brother. You know, him and I were brothers. You know, when I first got here, he picked me up and drove me up to drove me up to Doncaster. And I said to my wife, I said, honey, you know, this this England place is really different. She go, why? I said, well, Dave picked me up. And I got the other two Americans in the car with me when he picked me up right there in the back. And they put on some music, right? Man, they put on some music. And don't be wrong. It was uh, some good old white boy music. But it was kicking my, I couldn't stand it. I'm like, man, I, look, I, I'm not going to say anything. And then Dave rushed up, punched his, put his finger on the button, punched the cassette out, and it was cassette tape, and threw it out the window on the M1. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and you know what he said? He said, excuse my language, but he said, I ain't having none of that kind of shit in my car. And I was like, huh? And he, and he rushed in the glove apartment, and he jammed on, and he put on some soul music. And I was like, oh, my God. I didn't know about Northern Soul. I'm like, man, these everybody up north was like about soul music. They could jam. I'm like, now, this is what I'm talking about. But I said to him, I said, I said, man, the reason I said it was strange though is because we're driving up this motorway, and we just gone past 
top and services, which are still there to this day. And I look on the right-hand side of the road, and I said, uh, Dave, uh, is this some English stuff or what? He said, what you mean? I said, well, there's a lady up there on the right side of the the, uh, <laughs> the bridge there where we can see her sitting there taking a squat, you know, taking, a, taking as we say, a number two. <laughs> you know, she just, <laughs> and I said, I wouldn't mind so much, but literally 30 yards down the road was the entrance to the, to the service station. <laughs> he said, man, well, you know, when you got to go, Alan, you got to go. I said, all right, fair enough. I said, then I thought about why she was on that side because she was dri- driving down from up north, you know. But uh, I said to him, man, I said, uh, <laughs> I said, this is a strange country. I ain't never seen nothing like that. I said, I see people stop on the side of the road, take a pee, but I ain't never seen nothing like that. Take a shite, as they say up north. <laughs> when, you, when, when that sort of time, I mean, you guys won the with Portsmouth when you went down there. You won the league in the first first season, eighty seven of the BBL. No, and we the, did. Ah, ah, ah. You got to get your facts straight. Ah. Right, let's get. Uh, these facts are all wrong. I was watching some stuff online literally two weeks ago, and I went, "They really don't know what they're talking about." My first year at Portsmouth was eighty five. Mm-hmm. I played at Doncaster. I went Doncaster from uh, I was eighty two, eighty three. I was at Brighton, 83, 84, 84, 85. Brighton became Worthing, all right? We made the playoffs that year. Um, uh, in fact, that first year, my first year at, um, I'm trying to think who won the league that year. I want to say it was, uh, no, that must be my second year. Man United won the league. Man United won the league the second year. That was, that's when it, so that would have been my year at Worthing. And, uh, I think they only lost twice that year. I know the two losses because we whooped their ass like they stole something, all right? <laughs> Did you sort of feel like, I mean, because that was the time when you talk about Man United were involved in it and you know, Portsmouth was a you know, football club offshoot and everything then. Did it yeah. Did it feel like, I mean, you, the, there was, of those who were involved in setting up this, this new league, this improved league, breaking away from what was then the English Basketball Association, they felt like they were trying to push this to another level. Well, as a player, did you feel like there was any kind of tangible difference from going from one kind of entity to another? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, it, it was. It was. It was actually, it was great times. It was good feelings. The fans was rocking. Channel Four was in. You know, the people was really in the basketball. Everybody, every school I went to up and down around Britain, whether I was in Kent, whether I was up in Hampshire, whether I was down up in in Yorkshire, no matter where I went. Basketball was was, was was got to be had to be the fastest growing sport there was in schools was really trying to implement it in. What I always hate and to this day I'm gonna say hate. And I'll come back to the eighty five, by the way, in a minute. We talk about you when you said eighty seven, mm-hmm. is the fact that people were so small minded. They couldn't see that if I went to Real Madrid or went to Barcelona at that time, Barcelona had a stadium that seated 17,000 right next to the stadium. You know, I, the Barcelona football stadium is involved together. And then they built a 25,000 seater because the 17 was just too small, you know. And, but yet, so, but there were no visionaries here. The visionaries were the people with money, but the people that were holding them back were the people with no money. And think about it now. I would be JVC and I want to be bigger, you know. And I said, well, I'd be Sony. And Sony said, I want to come in and I want to be big too. But uh, JVC, nah, nah, nah. We're two big boys. But the little boy down there, you know, Mr. Powerbank, 
Uh, no, never heard of the company. Uh, well, they say we can't do this, we can't do that. They, they put too many rules, in other words. And my first year at Portsmouth, I toured that whole summer. I toured, we went touring for over a month, about, almost a month and a half, you know, uh, when I joined Portsmouth. And um, we played every top team in Europe that year. And they had their two foreign players at that time. And we beat all the top teams in Europe. And, and then we come to England, and you know what they say? Uh, oh, by the way, and you know who was in Europe for us that year in 85, 86? No. That's right. You wouldn't, because there was nobody in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> okay? That's how stupid it was. So, so Mr. Deacon, John Deacon owned the football, Portsmouth Football Club, and he owned the basketball team. You know, he went to the EBA. He went to the EBA and said, "Look, this is what I like to do. We like our team to be in Europe because Danny Palmer, who used to be at that time, he was a big coach over here. Danny Danny Palmer was a player himself, played in the NBA, also coached in Germany, play, played in Germany, coached in Germany, was a national coach over there. Came over here was a national coach for England for a minute. Played, you know, he was the Crystal Palace at one time. Crystal Palace was the top club, you know. And so he was the coach. He was a coach down there." And uh, he was trying to get us in Europe and everything, but uh, I know for a fact the league blocked us. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let us go in Europe. Talking about now, nah, you got to, you know, when put somebody in Europe. I said, well, that's just stupid. Because guess what? We going in Europe that year, and there was a damn good chance we would have won Europe that year. How do you think? How do you think that Greece became one of the top leagues in Europe when they were the bottom? They were the bottom league in Europe. Because what happened was they, they, their government invested money into the national, into basketball and the national team, and that year they won the European Cup. The national team did, and from there, it was just history. It was no looking back after that. Boom! They went from being the, the bottom of the team in Europe for for two, three, four years, five years to to being the top team in Europe. Because back before then, it was Italy. All the Italian teams were the top team, you know. And then after that, you want to play from like Belgium, France, you know, Spain, those kind of places, you know, but Spain, you know, but, but the top team at that time, the uh, top league was the Italian league and yet the Greek league they invested in. But over here, the small minded people were so worried about somebody coming and doing well, as opposed to saying, wait, let's get on the back of this, let's build on the back of this, that they said no and everything, you know, and I remember, cause I, and the reason I know I'm not lying, because I spoke to Mr. Deacon straight away after he told me everything. I was. You know, believe it or not, Mr. Deacon and I had a very, very, very good relationship. You know, he was like my dad. I was like his son. He said he came and recruited me for Portsmouth. Uh, I wasn't going to Portsmouth. At the time, Deacon recruited me for Portsmouth. I was on my way back to Europe. I had some trials going in Europe, and I said, I'm out of here. See you later, guys. I've done enough. I'm going to Europe. You know, I only came back over for a couple of years at the time because that was the reason I came to England at the time. My wife was having my second child, and I decided, well, let me go and spend a couple of years over there. You know, my wife's English anyway, and then I'll get get them to head back to Europe. So I did that, and I was headed back, and I was I was just practicing. Me and a guy by the name of Larry Dassey, who's one of the greatest players ever playing this game over here too, but he died early, died up on the A3, coming coming down from Wimbledon one day to to our practice. That was my second year at Portsmouth, and um, but he came up there, and he came up to Brixton Leisure Center. Brixton Leisure Center. This man drove up. His wife drove him up in her, in his big sky blue Rolls Royce. <laughs> par- parked it right outside the steps of the Brixton Leisure Center. I mean, couldn't believe. It. Walked in, came in, said, "Watch me play." 
hey, watch me and Dassey, because Dassey and I were playing together on this team. We were, you know, we were both going to head on out to Europe. And he said, came in and said, uh, yeah, I got, uh, I need to talk to two people here. Um, he says, uh, Alan, I need to talk to you. I said, all right. So I, I went into, he said, come on into the cafeteria. So I went into the, went into the reflectory cafeteria. It got all kinds of names, whatever you want to call it. And we went into the cafeteria. He says, uh, so everybody left out. He says, yeah, I need to have a word with this man in private. Could I just have a word in private? He said, yes, no problem. And he says to me, he says, um, I'm here because I come here to sign you on my basketball team. I said, right. He says, look, there used to be a team. He says, when I decided I was going to get into basketball, you were the reason I decided that I was definitely going ahead with it. And I said, well, Mr. Dickens, I don't even remember you. How could I possibly be the reason? <laughs> and this, this is a true story. He says, he says, Alan, and that's what I mean. He said, you're bigger than life. He says, I've been owning a basketball football club for years, and I just found that the football players back then were like cardboard. He said, he said it was hard to talk to them. They had trouble saying hello. They went by and all that. You know, just, he said, whereas there you was, bigger than life. And I said, well, how, how could you know that? He said, um, I'm going to refresh your memory, and you probably still won't remember me. He says, but I came to about two or three Worthing games. He says, you didn't know me from Adam. He says, you, uh, everybody said, uh, as you were wondering by the coach, so, by the way, this is uh, Mr. John Deacon. You know, I said, oh, nice to meet you and everything. Oh, well, come here, Mr. Deacon. Oh, uh, do you know anything about the game? He said, nah, I don't know anything about the game. He says, uh, he says, I know a little bit, but I don't know a lot and everything. I said, well, didn't you? I'm going to take you to the person, perfect person that can introduce you t to the game. And he says, and you took me over to your wife and said, this is my wife. These are my kids. They're here. Boom. Sit right here. She will tell you everything you need to know about the game and then some. Cool. He said, then you went back on the court, warmed up, and proceeded to give them 37 points <laughs> and win the game. <laughs> he said, I knew right there and then that I was definitely interested in the game and I, I said to my wife, he said, I said to Mrs. Deacon on the way home that, yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely going to buy me a team. So he bought a team called the Telford um, Turbos. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to be here. I get it right because uh, some of the guys that were on my team were from the Telford Turbos. And uh, they, they caught hell. <laughs> <laughs> we used to tell them it was the Telford Turtles, not turtles, <laughs> but turtles, turtles, you know. So, so they call out of hell. But anyway, he bought the team and he bought it down to, and he bought it down to Portsmouth. You know, he, he bought the franchise to Portsmouth, and and he had told Danny Palmer the first one I wanted signed on that team was Alan Cunningham. I mean, he'd signed all the other people, and then he told uh, what happened was Palmer came down there and said, "Oh yeah, I want to sign you in the club and all this." And he said, "I said how much, you know? I said I don't want to. I said look, I got time for bullshit because I already know what my plans are." You know, and when he came with it, when I came with all how much and uh, and he said this, that, and nothing wrong was damn good for that time. You know, he said, well, some of the footballers aren't making this. I go, well, I said, well, whoop de do for them. I said, that ain't got nothing to do with me. <laughs> I said, well, it, what, what, what does Mark Woods shoe size have to do with Alan Cunningham shoe size when it comes to buying a pair of shoes? Not a damn thing because Mark Wood wears a size. 10 or 11, Alan Cunningham wears a size 14, you know, so <laughs> that's my whole point, what I said to him about I don't give a damn about what footballers are you know, come talk to me about negotiate, that's like me saying, alright, well I'm gonna go negotiate for Quincy Jones to um to make some music over here, but guess what Quincy you know, I was gonna, I wanted to give you this, but uh, 
He said, but everybody over there is only making less than that, so that's all you can get. And Quincy said, and Quincy said, the hell with you. And, and you know, not that he did. I'm just making it sad, sad asses. That's how it was to me. I'm saying, dude, so you're saying to me, I can't believe you won't sign. You know, I can't believe, you know. I said, Excuse me. Uh, sorry, man. You may be lucky I agreed for a meeting with you. And that's not me being arrogant. That's just me being fat. Because at that time, I had kids. Dude, if I had to give up time, my time to come meet with you when I should be at home tucking my kids in bed, that kind of stuff, and doing stuff with them. So um, I said, you know, I said, uh, I said, no, nah, you go ahead on. I, I, I don't want to sign with you. I'm going to go ahead and go to Europe. And that's what brought Mr. Deacon to sign me personally himself. And I, and I was so he said, and when he sat down, he said, Alan, he said, you should have already been signed already. He said, he came to, I said, uh, well, Mr. Deacon, I said, money talks and bullshit walks. <laughs> and he said, he said, and he said, that's what I mean by bigger than life. He said, you just say what has to be said. I said, exactly. So he says, um, he takes out a napkin, a napkin, <laughs> a serviette, and he writes down some figures on it. And I went, yeah, I doubt it. You know, he looked at me like, oh, really? I said, yeah, really. <laughs> I'm headed to Europe, Mr. Deacon. I like, so he so he turned back and went. Right. Well, first off, he says, I'm going to, he says, all right, well, let's, let's, let's talk longevity. He says, uh, well, three years, do you? That'll do me. I said, that'll, I said, that'll be a start, but, uh, not on, you know, not on that money. You know, I said, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's way more than I was making, but that's not what I'm going to make when I get back to Europe, you know? So, you know, he says, uh, right. He looked at me and said, he says, I tell you, he said, well, how do you discuss contracts? I discuss contracts in net. And if that ain't a net figure, you really shouldn't be talking to me. And that was a gross figure. He said, all right, all right, okay, all right, first thing, net. He write net down on the, on the on top of the napkin. He said, okay, so I'm going to write some figures here that are net figures. And you, all I need you to do is shake your head, yes. He didn't say make a decision. He said, I need you to shake your head, yes. Done. <laughs> and that was it, deal done. I'm thinking these are some serious negotiations. <laughs> My man already told me how it's going to roll. So he wrote down some figures that were way more than I was going to make in Europe. And I looked at him. I said, those are net? He said, those are net. He said, we'll work it up to grow. He said, go gross up. That's what you will get. All right, well, that's a start. I said to him, that's a start. He said, right, what else you need? He said, well, I said, I'm going to need somewhere to stay. He said, done. I said, I'm going to need a car. Done. I'm going to need petrol. He said, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you, that's when you, yeah, okay, we'll have to push this as far as we can. You, well, I mean, no, that, well, that, that time at Portsmouth, I mean, it was a great team. I mean, Steve Nelson, Colin Irish, Billy Hunger, guys that you, you played with for ages in the side. Cal, Cal Patrick Wells. That first year, Portsmouth. Fantastic Cal, team. Cal Patrick Wells, uh, Larry Dassey, you know, Colin Irish, you know. Uh, Big Joe White, people don't people forget. Uh, Big Joe, Big Joe, he's passed away, bless his soul. But he he carried a big. It was a big whole loss when he died because he was a. He's up in London. He's up in the Tower Hamlet area, and he did a lot for those kids. And I know I went up there and watched Joe work with those kids. And he, all those kids in his basketball teams up there, they had to bring their report cards and their their their, their school reports to um to practice. They had to bring their they had to bring their homework to practice, and if Joe saw and he had reports from the teachers, 
as well as parents. And, and Joe said, right, well, guess what, mate? Uh, you know, uh, these grades ain't good enough and the teacher's report's not good enough, so you go sit over there and I will be over there to work with you in a minute on your schooling. Yours, okay, you're onto the court, onto the court, onto the court. So he wouldn't let them on the court and listen to their school, their grades and stuff were good enough. And that's why I was, see, we lost so many great players and so many great people along the way. Yeah, you know, it was Joe's sort of impact off the court was probably even uh, more than his impact on it. Oh my God! This guy, hey, hey, I'm trying to tell you, hey, that's why we called him Big Joe. He deserved that name. It was his impact off the court. I can only say that I, I give Joel Moore because Joel Moore was on my team that year as well too, and Joel, Joel, Joel did good. Joel picked, he tried, he picked up a lot of that slack in in that neighborhood, you know, uh, working with the kids and stuff and everything, and. I was happy to see it because all of them came out of those neighborhoods and they're like, hey, somebody did for us, let's do for them. And that's how I am because when I was young, I, being a military brat, I had a guy by the name of Mike. Mike was a, um, he was a bank manager. And the reason I know this because last summer when I was at home, I was just talking to my mom. I said, mom, I said, you know what? This one guy made such an impact on my life. Made me really think about that was there for us because, you know, he goes, she goes, before you said, he was a bank manager, Alan. I said, get out of here. I said, what was his name? He said, his name was Mike. She said, Alan, he came and picked y'all up, took us to, because I did athletics. I ran athletics. So he took us to athletic meets. He took us swimming. He did everything. We'd get in the back of the truck. Back in those days, everybody, all the kids get in the back of the truck, you see. Nowadays, nobody can get in the back of the truck. <laughs> it's against the law. But you get in the back of the truck, and he carries to the meets and stuff. Not just us, you know, not just my brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters but all other kids that area too and we competed and we got we won ribbons and stuff it was, oh, it was just amazing and I said to him you know I said mom I said thanks to him young people to this day I have always trying to do for young people through all my life because uh, it was it was a man that helped helped us out we were poor family military families uh, salary if your salary outside was 15,000 believe me military salary was only 10 you know it was always underneath way underneath so you know kids my father be got my father be gone Protecting, protecting the world. You know, he he be gone for a year and a half at a time out there on his ship. People say, well, I say, yeah, I say, I can remember my father been gone nine months to a year. Always he go out the West Pack, whatever. So my mom was a, she was a damn good mom, you know, because she made sure that her children took part in everything, you know. And but I also give, give, I give praise. You know, I raise my hand to God and praise to this guy named Mike and and all the good people around the world. I can, because here's. Here's a white man that came out and gave his time. He was, it wasn't about racism. It was about human beings being having a chance to do well in life, you know, and, and, and getting a chance in life. You know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that, but he did, you know. And I and I always say to people, look, that's good. That's what I try to tell you. All around the world, there's just good people. It ain't about your color. It ain't about your creed. It ain't about your religion. It's just about people being good people to each other and having a good heart and trying to do well. You know? Talking about helping hands, there was a really interesting little nugget in your career path. In 86, you were at Portsmouth and you ended up winning the playoffs that year, but you didn't win the playoffs for Portsmouth. You won the playoffs in a different country in the weirdest loan move I've ever heard of in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like this. When, when I came to Portsmouth, like I said, you know, you got to understand, we, we, uh, the first year, 
we didn't win the league that first year at Portsmouth, even though I said to you that we would have we would have won the European Cup. Yeah, even though we won all those games, we didn't win the league that year. Uh, what people don't understand about that story is, I, yes, I won my first trophy that year. For team James in Ireland, famous team from that era. Jameson, Team Jameson, baby. And do you know they asked me to come back and be the coach, the manager, the player, everything. Which would have been a hell of a ride. <laughs> and, you know, and do you know they were some of the, some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. So so good. We were, we were sponsored by Jameson Whiskey. And I got to go over to the Jameson Whiskey plant over there and meet all the people over there. And they're such good people, man. These people, you can imagine. So we're playing in the, we're playing in the final. So And that team was another team that Weren't doing too well. I joined them and and took a, got us up into the playoffs and everything. And then we got to play and we beat the number one team, Berglund. Berglund was the best team in in Ireland at the time, and that was their stadium, uh, Berglund Stadium, where we play in Cork. And that night, I don't know. I give them forty something, about forty three, I think it was to be exact. I'm not sure. It might have been forty three. Uh, wait, let me think about forty <laughs> three. A small hand in the picture. <laughs> I had a small hand. Actually, actually, no. My wife said it was forty-two. Sorry, it was forty-two. She knows. All right, <laughs> she was there. But yeah, I had a small hand because, uh, you know, I got there and, I, and when I got there, and I thought, hold on, man. You know what? You guys are losing like this. I said, guys, I'm I'm a winner. I'm about winning. Wherever I go, I win. I don't I don't do losing. You know, I said. I said, uh, well, we got, to win, we got to work on our game. We got to be more professional. We got to, you know, got none of this. I mean, I'm going to jump out of that right quick. Remember that. I'm jump back. When I came to Europe, remember I said to you about Europe being different. This is the difference in Europe and America. I got here. I needed a physio to do my feet. I said, well, look, I got to get my feet done and everything. I like to get my uh, powder up, you know, a little tape on my ankles and stuff, you know, get some pre-wrap and all that. Pre-wrap, what's that? That's the stuff that goes under the tape, so the tape don't have to be on your ankles. Oh, no, we got to shave your ankles here. And they came out with tape. This is my first year in Belgium. They came out with some tape, man. The tape was like, I looked at this and dude, I'm not putting that on my face. I'm not putting any of that on me. That's the kind of tape, that's the kind of tape you might, uh, that some criminal would maybe maybe tie somebody up with, you know. <laughs> so, you know, the kind of tape you never can get off, you know what I mean? <laughs> See, I said, hey, hey, hey. The kind of tape that when you look down on the floor and they've laid the court, that's the kind of tape they told me to take my ankles with. I went, man. I said, okay, well, where's the, where's the, um, uh, we used to go in the ice bath, you know, so we have jacuzzi, you know, jacuzzi bath. I, I go in, before, before practice, I would always go in an ice cold jacuzzi bath. And then I get out and get into a super hot jacuzzi bath. And then I'd go and have a, go out there and have a little, have a quick massage and I go run around and all that. Man, all of that was gone. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, well, this this is this is new stuff to me, guys. I've never known this. Uh, you know, we you can't even get any tape. But the biggest thing was my first training session in Europe. I was in the shower, and everybody's going, "Man, you know, you taking too long. You got to hurry up." I was like, "What's the rush?" Everybody was rushing <laughs> to the bar. Like, what do you mean you rushing to the bar? Huh? I'm like, "Huh? What? What do you mean?" Uh, and but that that wasn't the worst part. Well, the funniest part was I was standing in the shower, uh, you know, showering, soaping up and everything. So I looked to the left, and the man, two of the guys on my team are having a are having a cigarette <laughs> while they're while they're 
while, while they're showering before they go to the pub, to the bar, right? But what's even worse, the physios in there working on one of the players already, which is not a problem. But we're in the middle of a shower, and this was my first time I'd ever had a female physio in the shower with me, okay? <laughs> I think, man, you're just different, mom. You know what I said? Well, I said, you go to the toilet, and I have to look around twice, and I see, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong toilet. No, you're not. This is the men's. Well, there's about 30 women in here. Well, and I go look in the women's, and there's, about, there's men over there. No, I said, okay, this is Europe. You know, Europe is more open. America's very anal. America's very anal. Are you kidding? You, can, you know, uh, Europe was completely different how America was, you know. We ain't going to have no women in the locker room with men. That came <laughs> later on in life. Yeah, but, you know, but not, not then. Well, that is part one of our conversation with Alan Cunningham. Part two with more fascinating insights into an incredible career within the game coming up very, very soon. That is it for this edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Give them a follow on social media, please, at T Compliance Limited. And you can get all our previous editions at mvp247.com or subscribe, of course, via your preferred podcast provider. Please, if you can, leave us a review on yours, preferably a nice one, or if you want to help us fund more exclusive basketball coverage head to the website and sign up as a patron or if you want to get in touch reach out to me via twitter at mark Britball. another edition coming very very soon but for me mark woods it's bye for now